0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Amy Edwards about Are We Rich Yet? The Rise of Mass Investment Culture in Contemporary Britain. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Uh, Thanks for joining us. This uh, is a fabulous book. It's incredibly interesting. Uh, Like all really good history books, it's got an incredibly important sort of contemporary Relevance, uh, I think. And it also tells a a sort of genuinely fascinating story, Um, not just about the 1980s, but has, you know, kind of several big ideas in it. And I guess the place to start really is with the title. Um, I'm sort of interested in in what you kind of mean by the title, both in terms um, of what mass investment culture is, but also why you were interested in writing about, um, I guess, this kind of social, cultural, economic phenomenon.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, to start with the first point, so mass investment culture is really about the ways that investing and stock markets and shares have, in one way or another, become much more part of everyday life. Um, in Britain, in my case, anyway, that's what I was looking at. So, um, not only the number of people investing in shares and having an investment in the stock market, but just their visibility in society around us and the role of financial institutions in our lives in a way that, in fact, it's become quite difficult to imagine one's life without um, without a bank or uh, an investment fund or a pension fund or things like that. So it's really about this kind of spreading of finance through all sorts of different areas of life um, across the late 20th century. Um, and you're going to have to forgive me, I forgot what the second part of the question was
0: and what what got you interested in writing about this ah uh,
1: yeah of course um thanks so i mean there's a much longer version of this but i suppose the actual start point for me was i was really interested in political marketing and the way that political parties Um, use cultural touchstones to help people connect big complicated economic ideas or political ideas to quite simple and emotive messaging and I started looking at that um, particularly in relation to the Conservative Party because Margaret Thatcher was fairly famous for getting Saatchi and Saatchi um, the advertising company to run her fiscal marketing campaigns and as part of that I got into looking at how she marketed the concept of privatization to get people to buy shares um, often for the very first time and that was really my starting point and once I got into that I suddenly just became really interested in well how is it that suddenly something that in many ways seems quite boring and disconnected from people's lives in many ways actually becomes a real cultural moment in the 1980s and people are talking about shares as a kind of cool fun thing it's a news story it's on tv that kind of thing
0: yeah i i, I guess what you're describing there is this idea of sort of financialization and, and you mentioned you know stocks and shares banks investment funds becoming part of people's sort of everyday lives you know and, and it's sort of embedded in the cultural fabric of, of how we live life in, in contemporary britain And part of the book is saying like it wasn't always like that. But the other thing is it it talks about these two ideas about financialization needing consumerism and a particular kind of subjectivity to to work. And I wonder if you could introduce those uh, two ideas, financial consumerism and financialized subjectivities, because they sound, uh, I guess, sort of, you know, quite tricky, quite complex, but they're really central to the story the book is trying to tell.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, I think um, their their names are, sound more complicated than they are. So um, hopefully uh, a quick explanation will do. Um, so financial consumerism is really just the idea that finance, um, I would argue, particularly across the late 20th century, becomes viewed as and understood by people as a form of consumption. So much more like going into the process that you would go through, going into a shop, selecting a product. um, And that product has all sorts of maybe cultural meanings to you and that finance moves away from being something a bit more technical and more about kind of asset management and into, for some people, a kind of a form of shopping. And there's a whole kind of emotional, cultural thing that comes along with having certain kinds of shares or certain kinds of financial products. And you just pop into your bank and sort out what you're going to buy in terms of your pension or your mortgage I've just been doing um some <laughs> some financial shopping myself actually with with credit cards and things and that's a bit of what it feels like to me so um so that's kind of financial consumerism and then on the other side financialized subjectivities is really about the way that with this process of financialization and with ideas about stock markets and shares and finance and financial institutions the logic of financial markets becoming so much more embedded in society that that actually starts to change how people understand themselves and think about themselves and um, affects the way that we move in the world as well so I have these ideas of say investment oriented subjects so someone for whom ideas about investment shape not only how they think about investing actually but how they think about other areas of their lives. so we can think about it in the way that we use the language of the market in everyday life like oh i don't want to invest my time in that or like oh i've been hanging around with this guy but it's not been really paying any dividends Um, so this kind of even the language of something quite technical and that we would normally associate with the market becoming part of our everyday language and the way we think about ourselves and how we spend our time and our resources in different ways
0: What's quite interesting at the start of the book is, as you say, on the one hand, this is, you know, a new phenomenon that needs to be analysed, but at the same time, you you talk in quite detail and and at some length about the way that, you know, we we can see earlier eras in terms of uh, investment practice and and the kind of financial practice of British society. And and I guess to try and distill that, you know, where are we? Almost kind of 200-year history down to, to a single question is, is tricky but I, I wonder whether you could just sort of set the scene for the 1980s by talking um, about the kind of history of popular investment in the UK you, you talk about sort of pre-World War I the interwar years post-World War II what, what's the sort of uh, the lead-in to, to, to the story of the 1980s?
1: Yeah absolutely so as you say in some ways uh, the history of financialization and invest, mass investment culture sorry Is kind of is at least 100 years old by the time we get to the 1980s. Um, So I think there are these moments, and this is what why I was interested in that longer history. I think what you can start to identify is a pattern of conditions at different times that come together that allow a moment of expansion in in who is involved in share ownership and um, how many people. So the 1980s is the moment that I'm looking at, this really big boom in that in the 1980s. And I would argue that that is quite an unprecedented moment of expansion. But there were earlier examples of that. So like you say, there's a moment before World War I, uh, particularly in the kind of late 1800s, after the railway speculation of the mid 1800s, you start to see the emergence of a financial press. Um, I won't talk too much about it, but Alex Preda has a great um book and some articles about this, which are really, really interesting. Um, and then I think the other main moment for me, um, it goes a bit quiet in the interwar years. Um, there's a stock market crash, as we know. Um, the stock market was closed during, uh, during the war, which made that quite difficult. Um, there, were, there were some things that happened there. But the other main moment, I would argue, is after World War II in the late 1950s and 1960s, as you start to see uh, mass affluence And the more that people have a bit of extra money at the end of the month, um, some disposable income, yes, there are all sorts of goods companies that are looking to get them to spend that money on a car or a TV, but also banks. And um, other companies are aware that, hey, if people have got a bit of extra money at the end of the month... uh, maybe that's something that we might be interested in helping them to spend or save or invest in different ways. Um, And again, you see these kind of parallel processes of an expanding financial press, of more access to information about the market, of more different ways for people to invest that are a bit more user-friendly. So yeah, that's the kind of longer history so that then by the time you get to the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher and privatisation and the deregulation of the stock market, there's actually already quite a well-embedded set of kind of Cultural norms around investing that they're able to lean on as part of their intent to expand share ownership?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, as is probably familiar to, to uh, listeners, the 80s sees this massive kind of moment of uh, transformation for not just financial services, but as, as you talk about in the book, a variety of different um, kind of parts of, of British life and British society. One thing I was struck by, though, quite early on in the book, you you sort of make the argument that even as we're seeing major changes, particularly in terms of deregulation uh, of particular bits of the financial system, there's still quite kind of old, almost sort of like Mm -hmm. neo-Victorian tropes around, uh, I guess, who is uh, involved in finance, who is, you know, uh, kind of allowed to operate legitimately and who is considered a bit of a sort of risk taking uh, cowboy, really, and and you, you've got different um, occupations, different uh, sort of examples. But I'm interested in how, I guess, kind of deregulation and people working in finance were kind of culturally uh, constructed, you know, as both sort of legitimate and actually as a bit, you know, sort of chancers, cowboys, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, like you say. So the the 1980s, a bit like I was just talking about these other moments where. Changes afoot, and things are happening to do with who can access shares. They create these moments of anxiety um, as access to the market is moving amongst different people, um, and often this ends up being expressed in quite class terms. Um, so there's this long-standing norm of the kind of gentlemanly capitalist, the gentlemanly financier, who, in some ways, is an idea, uh, an ideal from across the 20th century of someone who's investing sensibly, who's um knowledgeable about the companies they invest in they're well financed and the moment that this starts to expand then the response to that is often to um delegitimize other kinds of financial actors or other people so sometimes that is working class people who may be investing for the first time and they're quite often constructed as likely to be duped um or entirely irresponsible. They're actually working class people are much more familiar with gambling. All they'll do is speculate their money away and it's not good for anyone. But these kinds of narratives are also applied to other types of financial actors. So if you move outside of the main London Stock Exchange and the kind of brokers that are part of the London Stock Exchange are these groups like licensed dealers, for example. And they're essentially people who are working outside of the regulator environment of the London Stock Exchange in the late 20th century. And they are dealing with what we might call penny shares. Um, These are shares in unlisted companies, really small companies, startups that aren't big enough to be on the London Stock Exchange. They're really high risk. Um, But licensed dealers are, uh, are dealing in these shares and are often targeting speculators and small investors. And they're really understood and constructed in the press and by the London Stock Exchange as these kind of cowboys who are like completely out in the Wild West doing unspeakable things and like duping people out of their money. Um, So, yeah, there's these really kind of interesting different ways that different types of investing and different people investing are constructed or understood in really quite different ways.
0: I mean, but much later in the book, you come across the kind of like avatar of the 1980s, (laughs) the, the, the yuppie. And I'm interested to kind of extend um, that that analysis, really, about why this, um, what would we even call them, you know, cultural tropes, set of individuals, um, social phenomenon, why this group is so sort of uh, culturally significant, both from the sorts of products they bought. You know, you talk about filofaxes in in the book and, you know, they were um, sort of really, you know, kind of famous symbols of a transformation of both. Um, working practices of capitalism um, and of you know sort of consumer culture as well but also i think it taps into something um much more general about both i suppose the kind of the fears but also the um positive points of uh financialization so yeah who, who are the yuppies why do they matter
1: yeah good question um i mean i think they matter i have i have a whole chapter about them so i'm very happy to talk about them um i suppose like you say yuppies in some ways become in many ways yuppies are no one yuppies are somewhere between um kind of demographics and emerging cultural norms and changing practices uh new types of jobs emerging um so there's no one person who's a yuppie. I talk about yuppies a lot as specifically a kind of subsection of the yuppie character of the 1980s, which is um, city traders as yuppies. But um, as one of my colleagues um, spent some time arguing with me, um, he, his pitch was that actually estate agents were the ultimate yuppie rather than traders. But I'll stick with traders for now. But they absolutely become this kind of reservoir, as you say, for both um The imaginative possibilities of the free market and of capitalism and of finance and upward social mobility and meritocracy as it's kind of circulating through political discourse and as society is becoming more free market um, under the changes of Thatcherism but also the reservoirs, uh, reservoir for anxieties about that. So within the city, there becomes this tension between yuppies and the old city gentlemen and the different values that they represent. Um, and the yuppies are this much more kind of workaholic masculinity. Um, and, and yuppies weren't only men, but in the city, they were often constructed um, or understood as the young kind of... Um, East End Barrow Boy traders of the stock market who were coming in with next to no qualifications, making millions in a matter of weeks, and then the kind of new money not knowing how to spend it. So... They're really important in that sense, and they're really useful to us as historians. I think for understanding some of the cultural shifts that are going on, but they're also really important at the time because they end up becoming a bit of a cultural icon. Which means, that, as you say, all the um, all the fashions and the accessories of the city start to become kind of cool and popular. And this is where kind of mobile phones and pinstripe suits, uh, uh, pinstripe suits, for example, and the kind of the all the things that people in the city would have been wearing. suddenly on um runways at new york fashion week um and filofax as you say which is actually just a way of organizing your contacts and your data or like your information about what investments you're making becomes like the must-have accessory and celebrities are um carrying them around so yeah yuppies become this sort of bridge between the world of high finance and the world of like popular culture um, and celebrity as well
0: I suppose those two examples of, you know, the sort of moments of deregulation and then the, the, the sort of the cultural trope of the UFP e are probably what people either remember or are kind of most aware of. But actually the book, um, you know, does a lot of drilling down into the everyday kind of practices, the everyday lives of uh, increasingly financializing Britain um, during the period. And And one example... I mean, there are lots of different examples in the books. But one example was this idea of you could just go shopping and buy shares. The idea of an investor actually becoming, I guess, a consumer, a shopper. And you've got examples of like shops that literally sold shares in ways that, you know, this consumer activity is a really different idea to the idea of investing or being, you know, uh, a shareholder in a company and having you know i don't know fiduciary responsibilities or 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 whatever and i'm fascinated um, by that uh, phenomenon really both in terms of like shops actually selling shares but but also the idea of investors could be consumers
1: yeah and this comes back to um earlier when i was describing financial consumerism and this is really what is at the heart of it and i would argue that financial consumerism is a really key feature that differentiates um what's going on in the 1980s from some of those earlier periods of expansion in um share ownership and i suppose that as you point out some of this is because there's deregulation going on because there's privatization because there is a growing public interest in owning shares in different ways companies whether that's banks um or in um I can't think of another single financial institution. There you go, banks. Building societies, my goodness. Um, They come to understand there's money to be made and they're trying to think of ways of how do we reach and talk to and offer services for a very different type of customer that perhaps we haven't dealt with or a type of customer that we've dealt with, but previously they've been more having kind of checking accounts and a savings account, but now we're interested in investing. So they start to use the norms that they associate with that kind of regular customer. They're used to retail environments. They're used to being on their high street. They're not used to going into a kind of wood panelled office um, somewhere in London and enlisting the services of a stockbroker. So they start basically using the norms of shopping to make types of investing and their products more accessible to people. So as you say, uh, one of the examples I use in the book is um, that Quilter Goodison, who is a stockbroker, um, they set up a share shop. They have an arrangement with Debenhams and they set up a counter in Debenhams so that people who are in Debenhams anyway, buying some perfume, maybe buying some underwear, I don't know what it is they're buying in Debenhams, that they can walk up to a counter next to the perfume counter where there will be some men Um, Stockbrokers, again, not always men, but the sources suggest largely men um, who are like, good afternoon, madam, can I interest you in buying some shares in British gas today? Um, So it really places investing in directly in those spaces that we would normally um, associate with uh, consumption and everyday consumption.
0: You mentioned uh, gender quite a few times, um, and, you know, particularly the construction of yuppies as men, uh, you know, stockbrokers, people working in financial institutions in, uh, as men. Towards the end of the book, you look at another example of sort of everyday practice, uh, the idea of um, investment clubs. Um, and gender really kind of comes in really, really strongly, both, I think, as an alternative to help us rethink um, the idea of the financialized Uh, consumer the financialized citizen to say well actually women were involved as well you know they weren't just as you say you know kind of passive consumers who might be going into share shops but at the same time this is a really sort of like as if i've understood it correctly everyday activity like being in a book club or something like that you know being part of uh, i don't know a parish council you know you know these kind of quite traditional british uh, tropes so what's the story of um, investment clubs in the 80s
1: yeah, thanks for asking. So I was really interested in, in investment clubs. Um, as you say, the investment clubs are essentially small groups, normally of friends, neighbours, work colleagues who get together and decide to pool their money together Um and make investments together and the clubs tend to meet uh, kind of regularly whether that's fortnightly, monthly, they're part social club, part a way to kind of get together with your friends. Um, a lot of the clubs meet at pubs um, or in people's houses, um, at local village halls and then they collectively talk about investing. And what they might invest in, if they're going to change what they've invested in, make new investments, and put more money into the pot. Um, and then they do that as a, as a kind of group activity. And I think they're really interesting because, on the one hand, as you say, they really reflect this idea some of the anxieties that come for people with um, this new kind of culture of investment and a slight expectation that people might be investing. Because for a lot of people, they have no idea what that looks like I mean I say a lot of people I don't really know what that looks like despite researching it um so it's sometimes it's about that it's also about the cost prohibitiveness actually of investing and it's only by pooling their money together that people who normally wouldn't be able to access or afford to directly invest in you know a couple of different companies find a way to do that and the reason why gender becomes quite important in there is because whilst, as I was saying earlier, high finance becomes in some ways kind of hyper-masculine. So in the city, this idea of the kind of um, uber-masculine yuppie trader who's competing on the stock exchange floor, making ridiculous um, investments and gambling it all, at the lower at the lower end in kind of everyday finance, that is being understood and constructed in a much more feminine way, partly because it's becoming much more associated with what is a very traditionally feminine sphere of consumption but also again, companies and banks and building societies are aware that there's a major pool of people out there who could be really good um, customers, and that's women so investment clubs are a space where people who are normally Seen as slightly outside of finance club, together so you see a lot of women-only investment clubs um, where women are coming together to talk about finance and to they they're also spaces where they're starting to explore their own financial agency and their economic agency in ways that are compatible with the wider changes towards a much more free market society. So they they kind of have these weird threads of like second wave feminism in them, but in a very kind of explicitly capitalist way, which is I think quite interesting.
0: There's lots more detail we we could sort of drill down into in the book, but I'm particularly interested, um, and it's always a sort of cheeky question uh, to to a historian and about a a history book and historical analysis, but where does the book contribute in terms of thinking about the contemporary financialization of British society? I mean, particularly since 2008, you know, we've seen on the one hand um, a pretty disastrous kind of social political response um, to the country's dependence on the financial services sector. On the other hand, you know, we're kind of still living through, you know, at least every two or three months, but, you know, sometimes every week um, evidence of the kind of financialization of, of British society and how we think about things like, you know, interest rates, budgets, mortgages, pensions, all this Kind of stuff in in ways that you know you're really clear in the book have been hugely shaped by the 1980s so what is the sort of uh, the book's lessons uh, for contemporary society today
1: yeah I think I mean I think there are a number of different ways you could think about this I mean you mentioned kind of 2008 and the financial crash for example and I think one thing that the book helps us to understand or at least I hope it does is that understanding the power of financial institutions and financial markets that they have in our society, in our political system, um, in our economic system, means also understanding their power in our social and cultural lives as well. And that understanding how governments were able to deal with the financial crash in the way they did by really socialising risk and using vast amounts of taxpayers' money to bail out banks and things, not only relied on a kind of political willingness to do that but a wider cultural acceptance that finance and financial institutions do have a role in our lives and that they are really powerful and that we are all tied up in them and that bits of our lives depend on their success so i think some of what i'm interested in has been this normalization of the idea that we all have some kind of stake in the finan- in financial markets one way or another And this is partly why I'm interested in mass investment culture. So that's the most kind of explicit direct form. But ultimately, the story that you kind of get out of looking at this is whilst there's this moment in the 1980s where everyone, um, like, investing becomes a bit of a craze almost, the longer term outcome is actually that more and more people, they're not investing directly, but they are tying themselves in different ways to financial markets through their pensions, through their mortgages, through different kinds of um, insurance and all of those kind of things. So I'm really trying to understand how it is that we got to the situation that we did today. And then there are all these other echoes, the kind of language and um, stories and tropes that you see financial institutions in the 70s and 80s testing out as a way of like, is this how we kind of talk to people about finance and get people interested? Um, One of the major kind of emerging trends is banks talking about That They're the ones who are going to help democratize access to finance, that investing now is suddenly for everyone and we're going to help you do that. And if you, I don't know, if you're in London, sat on the tube, you can see all sorts of adverts for investing apps, which is like investing made easy. Investing's now for everyone. Um, Anyone can make a bit of money on the market. I mean, you can think of crypto. We don't have to get into crypto, but it's it's those kind of things where it's actually the same it's the same patterns and it's the same kind of selling points and it's the same kind of marketing and it's i think that's really interesting that these kind of relationships and cultural norms that were really embedded through the 1980s still kind of live with us and have these after effects today
0: yeah i I think you're really right that in 30 years time we, we might be expecting um you know, you or, you know, sort of maybe one of your future PhD students to be thinking in terms of, of this period and the kind of app enabled almost acceleration and yet continuity uh, of financialization through, um yeah, fairly kind of crazy <laughs> and <laughs> highly questionable investment opportunities. But that obviously is for uh, kind of future historians. In terms of your own work, uh, like I said, there's you know a huge amount of stuff in this book there's you know sort of several other books that could be written you know just based on the agenda it's it's tried to set so are you thinking of more work in this space um or is there a kind of a different project um that your work is going to be um thinking through in the coming years
1: yeah there's actually uh, I guess two kind of parallel things i'm interested in so um One is uh, hopefully maybe a project uh, coming up, working with um, some colleagues at other universities that will be interested in more of the emotional side, uh, like emotional histories of finance and thinking about, you know, I've been talking a lot about people's anxieties about finance, but actually I was mostly looking at the financial institutions and um, financial marketing and financial advice. But actually what was that experience like for people and how did financial institutions set up those quite emotive relationships with people talking about we well, should invest because you're investing in your children's future. That's actually quite a powerful um, that's quite a powerful thing to be working with. So some, there's some stuff that I'd quite like to do more with the finance thing um, and investing. On the other side, uh, I've also got um, a project coming up, actually, which is a bit more concrete and um, set in motion, which is going to be due, uh, to do with self employment and other types of ownership, and particularly business ownership, and the appeal of um, those messages about upward mobility as they kind of emerge more through the idea of the Alan Sugars of this world um, and thinking about. Uh, yeah, some of that some of that kind of neoliberal meritocratic promise as it emerges in different cultural forms and what people's experiences of that were like. Um, that's a bit of a roundabout way of saying it. But yeah, self-employment anyway, histories of self-employment and um, from the kind of 70s through um, things like business franchising actually and The Body Shop and Avon and direct sales, stuff like that, something in there anyway.
0: And <laughs> um, another book?
1: Um I'm sure maybe at some point I'm still getting over the um I'm still getting over having done this one <laughs> it's still in recovery so maybe at some point yeah